Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Bright Lights uh, coming to you live from our studio here in North Minneapolis. I'm your host, Lacey Johnson, and a program where every week we bring on uh, people who have achieved in the area of business, technology, education, and all fields of endeavors uh, as bright lights. We shine a bright light on them. Uh, in turn, they shine a bright light uh, and share that bright light with our audience. And hopefully our audience uh, will share the bright lights about this program with other people. And so we'll have a win-win-win situation. Uh, today in Minneapolis, it is hot as a mug, as they would say in the black English vernacular. And I got that from Liberal Arts College over at the University of Minnesota. That's the type of stuff they teach you there. Uh, and so it's just very, very hot. And I think it was like 97, 98 degrees uh, since the last time we gathered over the weekend. I had a good family get together, celebrated uh, uh, my niece's birthday. It's always great to have family get together. It's the first time we've gotten together without masks and things like that. Uh, and just had a great time. Uh, so that's the good thing. Uh, but speaking of hot, uh, hot issue still is law enforcement. Uh, the whole police situation here. I understand that uh, the uh, chief of police wanted uh, up to 1,200 uh, officers uh, as part of the Minneapolis Police Department. And given the recent set of events, I think we're down to 500. And uh, I hear if you got uh, the burglar alarm system that's uh, automatically calls out the police, they're not coming nowadays. I should be telling the burglars that. But they, they, they understand that uh, they can do anything. And I don't know about uh, other people here in the Twin Cities, but uh, it's scary out there. I mean, we've gotten to the point where people don't respect stop signs or red lights or anything like that. Uh, once again, uh, thinking back to my University of Minnesota days, uh, I had a classmate and eventually became pretty close with uh, who was from Alexandria, uh, Egypt. And he drove just crazy. He didn't respect any traffic laws or stop sign either. And I asked him about it. He said, where I come from, uh, they don't respect traffic laws and traffic signs and stop signs. And little did I know, I look up and we're having the same situation here in the Twin Cities. Uh, to the people of the Twin Cities, and especially Minneapolis, uh, I hope you hold people accountable, leadership accountable uh, for the uh, degradation uh, within this city in all areas uh, of community uh, relations and things like that. But having said that, we are all about solutions here. Uh, I'm pretty, I've been pretty uh, steadfast in saying that most of these issues that we're dealing with, we can only offer band-aids to them, uh, panaceas perhaps, uh, that ultimately, to get to the root cause of these issues, we're going to have to have economic development where we put money in people, people's pockets, uh, raising their level of income and their net worth, uh, creating generational worth that uh, wealth that they can pass on to their children. We're going to have to have quality education for everyone. And we're going to have to get out of this thing where uh, we can educate uh, certain children if we only had more money. We can educate certain children if their parents were more involved. We need to uh, have an attitude that we're going to educate our children, no excuses. 
uh, but we won't see that from the current structure. So uh, economic development, quality education, uh, family, we got to put the family back together, rebuild the family. And part of that is uh, uplifting the men and so they can take the proper role to support and lead their family, protect their family, provide for their families. Uh, and finally, uh, I believe in a foundation of faith. Uh, and before we leave, bring on our guest, uh, I will say uh, we will have a special Father's Day program where we will talk about the importance of fathers in, in the home. And I've been pretty straight up front trying to keep it 100 that until men start marrying the mothers of their children and staying there and supporting the, their children and basically putting their uh, family first, uh, that uh, we're, we're not going to get to the bottom of most of these issues. So feel free to disagree with me. I hope I'm wrong. But I don't think so. Uh, so let's uh, let's bring on tonight's guest. Uh, tonight's guest is Mr. Ron Wallacek. I got that right, Wallacek. Uh, he he's going to straighten me out. Uh, and he's uh, into uh, uh, banking and mainly in the foreign exchange area. So we're going to uh, talk to him and things that he's he's been doing. Uh, he's recently moved here to the Twin Cities. And uh, he's just been involved already uh, in the community. So, uh, Ron, uh, glad to see you. Welcome. Well, good evening, Lacey. And, and well, thanks for having me, first of all. And, um, you know, your, your opening statements are, are, are so incredibly positive. And I, I really appreciate those comments about, you know, where, where we have to go. Um, as a as a as a city, as a as a as a, as a state, country. I mean, there's there's some great messages there. Uh, and yes, and you know, I uh, even though I know it's challenging, and I know that it's not easy, but I'm very positive that we can get this done. I have a lot of faith uh, and confidence in the people and the human capital. Uh, I, I tend not to pity people because uh, I think they can do it. Whatever I do, I think they can be successful at whatever they do. And I have a, this motto uh, that I say to the young men that I talk to, if I can do it, you can do it. And that's just my uh, feeling. And I think there's so much that goes on where people are always uh, preaching to our youth about all the obstacles in their lives. Uh, I'm here to preach to uh, the great advantages and opportunities and that they can do anything they want to do. So thank you for that uh, generous feedback, Ron. So let's get together, get started here. First of all, bail me out a little bit. I think I pronounced your name halfway correctly. <laughs> yeah, well, Ron. Uh, uh, repeat it for our audience. And so uh, uh, when they are talking to their friends, uh, they won't use my pronunciation of it. They will use yours. Well, you know, and hopefully they'll use it in a positive way. Um, so it's Wallacek. And um, I know, uh, you know, I, I'm originally from Chicago, a uh, very large Polish population. And I move up here to, to the Twin Cities uh, just literally 13 months ago. And I noticed there's a large uh, Polish population here. And I'm thinking to myself, my name should be fairly easy to pronounce. But then I think about all of the other Polish names that I can't pronounce. So, you know. As long as you get it in the ballpark, I could figure it out. Um, so it's well, just, you know, Wallacek. 
Okay, and the extra challenge with me, you mix it with the Mississippi background, <laughs> Mississippi <laughs> accent, and that's a little bit even more challenging there. So, uh, so Ron, uh, first of all, you said you're you're from Chicago. What a wonderful city that is! It, if, it is. If, I hope they still have kept it that way. You haven't been back since some of the recent things, but it's a beautiful, wonderful city. I've been hearing some things in the news that wasn't that great, but I'm assuming that uh, they can uh, reclaim the old glory uh, down on Michigan Avenue and the theater district and all the great places down there. Uh, but tell us about uh, your family life growing up and childhood influences and things like that and what makes Ron the successful. Well, that could have predicted Ron to be the successful person he is today. So I, I always question success, right? Because everyone has a different definition of success. Um, so I, you know, I was very fortunate. Um, I, I come from a very large family. Um, I'm half Irish. My mother was um, Irish, and my 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 dad Polish. And so, un, not unlike Minnesota, everyone kind of lives close together, right? In a family. So you, you know, your uncles, your aunts, your cousins, you're all at the same grade school and all that kind of deal, which is, which is great because you have built-in friendships, mm -hmm. but then you also have built-in snitches that go home and tell their parents what you did. And then your parents call your parents to tell them what you did. And, you know, um, so the, the, you know, the, the upside of that is you're always around a lot of people and they're always loud and there's always good stuff to do. And, and the downside is sometimes you don't always get to explore and meet new friends. Um, most of my family are uh, Chicago firemen. And uh, my dad was a Chicago fireman, his brothers, my mom's uh, uh, brother, and my mom's sister was the ninth woman on the uh, Chicago fire department. And uh, she was a paramedic for uh, 32 years. And um, I can guarantee you, I think she's around 82 now, I, I guarantee you that you do not want to mess with Aunt Maureen. Um, so, you know, having this, this structure where my dad was a fireman and when he was off of work, he was actually at a, a butcher shop because he was a butcher. And when he was home, it was all about making dinner, helping my mom with the laundry. I have three older sisters. And um, so Lord knows, three older sisters in the 70s, uh, that was a bit of a handful. Um, not, not that I wasn't. Uh, but... Um, you know, the combination of always having uh, specifically my dad around, right? And, and there was my dad's way and there was the wrong way. And that was just how it went. Um, and you knew that, right? When in the morning when you woke up and you put your feet on the ground, you knew what the rules were. And, and the rules were pretty straightforward, right? You know, if my mom asked me something to do, you got it done. Um, if, if your aunt or uncle needed help doing something, you were over there doing it. If you didn't, then you had a, you had to pay a price. And that price wasn't one that I would, you know, suggest was always a positive one. So, you know, be, being in that environment, it, it was great to be totally honest with you. We didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have a big house. In fact, uh, the house, um, I grew up with my three older sisters, my mom and dad was 1300 square feet with one shower. And, um, you know, it was fine. We didn't want for anything. You know, we, we went on vacation. We had dinner every night together. Um, I, I was fortunate to, to go to 12 years of Catholic school uh, on the South side. So, 
you know, the nuns took care of me, uh, grades one through eight, and the brothers, Irish Christian brothers at St. Lawrence High School took care of me for four years. And when I say that, they, you know, anytime I moved out of line, they got me back in line. Um, so again, you know, it was much more disciplined and much more, um, I, I want to say easy, because I think the young people today have so many things coming at them in every direction that it's much more difficult where it was a more simple time yeah. and you were much happier. Well, yeah. And like same here, similar background. And it was a lot easier when the adults made the rules and you just followed them. And it's not they never asked you, yeah. They, they never asked you what your opinion was. You just did what they did. <laughs> right. I know exactly where you're coming from. Well, here's the thing. You talk about uh, all the firemen uh, in your family background. Uh, what made you go? What caused you to go wrong here, Ron, yeah. and, and get into uh, finance and major in agriculture economics at University of Illinois, Urbana Champaign? You got an MBA in finance from Southern Methodist University, the Cox School of Business. Where did you go wrong at, Ron, where you yeah. ended up in this area of finance and ended up, uh, heaven forbid, in the area of banking? How did that happen? So that, that that's a great question. Um, I, I'll just say that my uh, my mother passed away several years ago, and when we were going through her stuff, she still had my letter from the Chicago Fire Department um, in her in her uh, drawer, waiting for me to make a change. Um, you know, my my journey was a little bit different in that my dad had had a series of heart attacks uh, on the mm -hmm. Chicago Fire Department, and by the time he was fifty one or fifty two years old, I was I was about a junior in high school, I think. Um, he had retired and they were making uh, $28,000 then. And so he got 75% of that as his pension. And, um, you know, this was a man who worked, worked really hard, uh, worked in the Chicago stockyards for 10 years, was a, a, a U.S. Marine during the Korean conflict. So a very hardworking man. My mother, on the other hand, was just as hardworking. You know, my mother grew up in a housing project and, um, she always worked, right? And so when I looked at that and thought to myself, wow, here's, here's a couple that's really worked hard their whole life to come from nothing and build a nice family, um, have no bills, and you're gonna get 75% of 28 grand? Um, that's not something that I wanna do. And um, you know, my, to take that further, my, his younger brother who was a fireman uh, died at 45 in a fire, his older brother, uh, lost a lung in the fire um, as a fireman. So, you know, you just kind of look at it and go, is it really worth it? Um, you know, now as we sit here today, Lacey, um, you know, my cousins that are all retiring from the Chicago Fire Department now after 30 years, they've got really big pensions. And, and um, you know, so you look at that and go, eh, that's a pretty good idea. Um, but, you know, frankly, I, I, I started out um, out of high school, I went to the University of Dubuque, a little Division three school, and I played football there for a couple of years, and uh, then decided to transfer to Illinois. And um, agricultural economics sounded like something fun. And as I got into it, I learned that I enjoyed economics. And more importantly, I enjoyed this idea of, of risk management. You know, if you're a farmer and corn prices are 10 bucks a bushel, it, you know, can you hedge that? Can you do that? And that just seemed so real to me. And um, so when I got out of school in uh, 1987, um, 
I went down to the floor at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange to the trading floor and got a, uh, a job as a clerk and um, not in the agriculture pits, pits but actually in the S&P 500s. So I got in there um, in uh, January of uh, 1987. And of course, in October was the stock market crash. Mm -hmm. And so I got a real quick baptism by fire, if you will. From that point, I just really got addicted to this industry. So I worked for a Japanese bank for four years and then um, I traded for them. And then I moved over to a, a bank. Well, nobody knows it now, but First National Bank of Chicago. And I actually worked 10 at night to seven in the morning. And I did that for three years trading currencies. So we dealt with all the hedge funds because at the time, just because of communication, the hedge funds didn't want to have to call Tokyo or London. They wanted a one phone number where that person could understand them. They could, you know, and vice versa. And we can, we can do their business. So it, as much as the hours were difficult, Mm -hmm. It was it was a great experience to deal with um, George Soros, Louis Bacon, Paul Tudor Jones, so all the the main players, you know. And you and again, it it just kind of drives you to be better. And um, after three years, and 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 we my my uh, ex wife at the in the time we we had one baby, and uh, so I would come home and and try to play with with my baby and or fall asleep on the couch with the baby. Um, and um, then we, and then uh, she was pregnant again. So I was fortunate to go on days and trade. And um, they asked me if I wanted to join sales. And I said, well, I could do that. I could talk, right? Like we could all talk. So that's fine. And then right at that point, they said, do you want to move to Dallas, Texas? And um, join our bank down there. So I went down to, uh, to Dallas for three years. That's where I went to SMU. And um, to be clear, I was in the MBA program. And halfway through it, they asked me to move back to Chicago. So I never really finished up my MBA at SMU, uh, which is a disappointment. But you know what? When you have three kids, because we had a, a third when we were in Dallas at the uh, Margot Perot Hospital, um, you you have to do, again, what you what what's important. What's important is you've got three young ones. The degree might be worthwhile, but at the same time, I need to make sure that I'm I'm present, right? So right. moved back to Chicago. And um, in, in 05, 2005, uh, JP Morgan bought Bank One, which is where I was at the time. And uh, from that point on, you know, my career in finance, you know, when you're in JP Morgan's world, it's a t totally different world. So I had great opportunities. Um, I learned a ton. Um, I always worked with smarter people which, you know, frankly, isn't that difficult, but I always worked with smarter people and that makes me better. It makes everybody better to ch be challenged uh, by, by younger, smarter people. And so I ended up, you know, four years um, with JP, well, four years, the last four years I was there, I spent um, in California. I managed their uh, foreign exchange middle market business in, on the West Coast. So I was living in San Francisco, living in Los Angeles, and always had my home in Chicago because there's one thing that's true when you get into bigger banks or, or big financial institutions, every two or three years, they change their mind. Right. And you, you don't want to kind of get stuck. Right. But uh, no, it's been quite a challenge. Um, it's been fun. It's been lucrative at times. 
And um, again, it's never dull. You could always learn something from somebody else. So currently, uh, you are vice president of foreign exchange trading and sales at Old National Bank. And tell me exactly, well, not exactly, give us our audience uh, briefly here an idea of what does that entail. Sure. So uh, here at Old National, I joined Old National uh, a year ago, and Old National um, is considered a community bank. Um, it was $23 billion as uh, in assets up until a week ago when we merged with uh, First Midwest, and now we're $45 billion or so. Um, what I do is, and what I've always done, is I work with companies, corporations, some institutional like clients, and I help them manage the risk of buying or selling product globally. So the best way or the best example is if you have a company here that needs to buy equipment from Germany, they have to pay for that equipment in euros. And typically that equipment might take three, four, five, six months to be built and shipped over. Well, in between that three or four or five, six months, the currency markets are moving continuously. So the euro could be stronger, the euro could be weaker. My, my job, if you will, is to help that company, A, understand what the risk is to that purchase, how to hedge the risk. So today, a company doesn't want to play the currency game. They just want to know how many US dollars is that piece of equipment going to cost me. So we will work with them to help them hedge all of their cash flows, if you will, right, right. to purchase that equipment. So, and so that's what I do. So basically, uh, you help uh, basically reduce the risk of fluctuation uh, in the uh, 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 currency exchange rate, dealing with the dollar, uh, et cetera. Right. So explain to me, as we know, uh, recently, I think we can safely say the uh, Federal Reserve basically have been flooding the market with money and dollars and things like that. And yeah. as we all know, basic economics that generally leads to inflation. And how is that uh, currently impacting the foreign currency trade market, uh, uh, global market right now? And what do you see uh, down the road? as far as the impact it's going to have. Yeah, we all, we all wish we had that uh, crystal ball, right? <laughs> That's um, right. You wouldn't be sitting here talking to me. <laughs> I'd be up to um, so it, it, we're in this very strange time right now, right? As we come out of COVID, and we are coming out of COVID, not just from the um, the number of folks that are being in, uh, infected or, or, or dying, but in general, the economies globally are starting to move forward. And and a big part of that is the vaccine. And I think another big part of that is the fact that th this virus has, has run its course, right? At least, at least for the moment. So we're starting to see a lot more activity globally. So companies had been holding back on their purchases and now they're gonna have to go out and buy. Um, and so our business is getting a, a little bit more um, uh, active, if you will. Now. We have this struggle where typically if you're seeing an active 
participant or an active company or the market is active, then you would see more volatility. But right now we have this, this struggle going on. You have the Fed saying they're going to keep rates low at 0.25% and they're going to continue to print money for some period of time and most likely will not raise rates till 2023 or something like that. You have Europe kind of faced with the same same problem. And, and when you look at the Europe, the EU, and you look at the US, we're similar in the size of the economies. So you have the two of them trying to figure out when to raise rates, if they wanna raise rates. And so the conversation has been about inflation. And the new, and, and you know, Whenever you're in the financial markets, there's 87, 98, 2008, and now today. So you have these blowups, right, in the marketplace. And mm -hmm. there's always like new catchphrases that come out, right? Um, in 1998, it was green shoots. 2008, it was transparency, which you'll hear from everybody now. I want to be transparent. Well, between you and I, Lacey, mm -hmm. to me, transparent means be honest. We don't need to make a big word or, or say, tell people we're going to be transparent. Just be honest with people. This is what it's going to cost. This is what it's not going to cost. I'll be home at 10. Let's just be honest, right? And, 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 and now all of a sudden it's a, it's a you know, everybody's got to be transparent. Um, but when we, when we look at the inflation that seems to be driving through our economy right now and and a lot of economists are really nervous that this inflation is going to drive interest rates much much higher um, some talking about the Jimmy Carter rates of 16 17 18 percent um, the, the the issue though is the inflation we're seeing today they want to call it transitory so maybe it is really all of the built-up demand for something, for some product, for some commodity. And once that demand flows through the system, the system may go back to where it was. So in a lot of ways, we wanna hope for that, right? Because we don't want 17 or 18% interest rates. Right, right, right. But how do you, the system go back to where it was when you have not done anything to impact the number of dollar bills out there? Yeah, so this is, this is the biggest um, question in my mind. Um, I personally, and this is not old national bank, but I personally think the dollar is going to be much weaker a year from now. I think the dollar is going to be much weaker five years from now. Um, and we're starting to, you're starting to hear some, some talk about the Chinese currency of all currencies um, becoming more like a reserve currency and in some cases, replacing the dollar. Um, last week, Ray, Ray Dalio, which is the big hedge fund guy, um, said that that's kind of what he sees. He sees over time that, you know, the dollar loses its luster. Um, you know, difficult, that's a difficult spot to be in. And I would say this, when it comes to currencies, the strongest currency always has the strongest navy. So prior to right. the US dollar, you had the UK, you had the pound, and the pound and the UK had the strongest currency and the strongest navy. 
And, and for a long time now, the U.S. has had the long, strongest Navy. And again, you know, I'd probably get laughed out of the uh, circles around Yale and Harvard with that comment. But it's, it's, it is true. So if you believe that the reserve currency is going to be China, then you also have to assume that they're going to have an incredible Navy, Navy to back that up. Uh, I've been hearing some stories about what they're doing militarily. Oh, and before I go any further, I sure. said when you haven't done nothing about uh, the number of dollars out there, and I can hear my uh, old English teachers, Mrs. Nelson and Mrs. Fraser, saying, you're using the double negative. When you <laughs> Let's stick on the uh, subject of the Chinese currency. Uh, I do recall uh, years ago, uh, and I think there was some step uh, taken during the past administration that China was often accused of manipulating the currency rate uh, to uh, provide uh, its an advantage in the world of uh, global trade. Uh, what's going on there nowadays? Is, has it changed? Is it getting better? Do, do we still have to, are they still playing games with the currency rate over there? Yeah, so, you know, that's a great question. Um, the, the currency had already, if we go back to the late 90s, early 2000, the, the currency was pegged. In other words, it just, it did not move. So you could buy, you could sell at an exchange rate of around 8.28. Um, so 8.28 Chinese yuan to one U.S. dollar. And what that did was it attracted a lot of manufacturing to China. Because if I don't have to worry that a currency is going to impact my margin or my cash, then I want to do business there. And then, of course, we know that they didn't pay their employees a lot of money. So you, you put the two together and it was a great, uh, a great, um, uh, solution for companies. And, and in fact, if we go back to that point or that time, uh, one of the largest companies on the planet at the time, GE, was actually the first company really to start moving into China and, and manufacturing and so forth. And, and so, so much of our manufacturing base was shifted over to China. And, you know, over the next decade or so, there was a lot of stress on China. You have to allow that currency to, to strengthen. So it would reflect more of a, what your market is, is really worth or your economy. And so as a result of that, they moved their currency in one night from 828 to, and it's kind of weird that I know this, um, 828 to 811 in one night, and then allowed it in a managed flow so it can only go up and down a certain amount and they still do that so today the currency is trading right around 6.4 so it's gotten so much more strong right. um, but they still control the currency um, because in order for them to maintain a capital base inflow of foreign currency they need to make sure the currency isn't being shot all over the place, right? They don't want an Argentine peso or a Brazilian rei. They want to make sure that it's it's steady. So they continue to do that. And depending on how you look at it, you could say currency manipulation, but we're dealing with a communist, communist country, and that's what they do. And so if you say that they're making their currency weak, that's not true because it's at 
some of the strongest levels it's ever been. Um, but even this past weekend, um, two or two Sundays ago, actually, um, they forced, which is again, something different than what we would do here in the States. They forced their Chinese banks to increase their holdings of foreign currency. And part of that was to weaken the Chinese currency. And it did a little bit, but it, you know, it's kind of the, what they throw across the bow when they're going into negotiations with the U.S., right? They, they throw a little out there and say, well, look what we did type of thing. Okay. So now we've talked about uh, the currency rate uh, globally. We've talked about the maybe the uh, Chinese currency replacing the U.S. as the main reserve currency in the world. We've talked about uh, potential inflation. Uh Let's attend. Uh, let's talk to the average Joe Blow or Mary Joe on the street here. Yeah. What break this down in simple terms? Uh, what the what perhaps does this mean to the citizen just going into the various stores and at the gas pump? Uh, help our audience uh, understand what this portends uh, for Main Street America. Sure. Um, so I think we've all experienced higher prices at the gas pump, um, you know, and there's two ways to look at that. I look at it as, as somebody that focuses on the economy. I look at it as a positive. And the reason it's a positive is there's now demand for oil. So, so as economies open up, we're going to be hiring more people um, globally. There's going to be a more there's going to be more demand. So, so that's a positive thought. And, and as, as a result of that, oil prices go up and therefore gas at the pump has to go up. So, you know, there, there's a level that I think is, is fair for the consumer. Um, you know, and depending on where you are economically, you might think 250 or 279 is fair. And if you, you know, drive a big car and you make a lot of money, maybe you think $4 is fair. Um, so I think, you know, we're going to see that continue. You're going to see higher gas prices. Um, you know, certainly with kind of the move toward more green energy and less fossil fuels, um, that will impact, definitely impact. Um, so so that's, that's the one piece that I know everyone's going to feel. On the other side of the coin is is the agriculture prices. And when you're looking at corn and soybean, and, and that's an input into not only certain food stuff that we eat, but it's also an input into cattle, mm-hmm. pigs. Um, so we're starting to see prices in, in, in that part of the sector move higher as well, right? Meat prices are going up and they're going to continue to go up. Corn is also the main um, uh, ingredient when it comes to some of the gases that are out there, right? The ethanol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if, as that price goes up, then ethanol has to go up. Right. So when you start thinking about where all of these commodity prices are going, then inflation is going to be impactful. You go to the grocery store now, you know, what used to be broccoli for $2.99 a pound is now $4.99 a pound. Um so we're going to experience this for some time. And 
I'm not sure that there's any way that the, the consumer is going to be able to hedge against that unless they totally change how they eat. But I'm not sure that would be a healthy alternative, whatever that is. I don't know what that is. Um, but, um, you know, I think in general, you're going to see, um, you know, and, and also, you know, you've been hearing a lot about lumber prices and the scarcity of lumber, the scarcity of lumber. And so that's driving their prices up as well. Um, now, all of that's inflationary. All of that hurts us in the pocket. But what doesn't hurt us in the pocket is when you can get a 30-year mortgage right. for under 3%. Right. So you're, you're, it's cheap money out there. And so what, what's expensive on this side, that mortgage is very cheap. My problem or my issue with that is we've all, was you and I are a little bit older. We've been through these cycles and how many buy home buyers are kind of stretching a little bit, kind of stretching to get that bigger house, mm -hmm. um, better school district. And we're going to talk about education. I know. Um, mm -hmm. So we're gonna. So how do I stretch to get that? Well, once even though the money's cheap, if they're using a variable rate mortgage or something like that, eventually when rates do go higher and they will, um, those rates are going to adjust, and, and that mortgage is going to become very difficult for for the home buyer. So that's what I worry about. Okay. So now in advising these companies. Uh, how to mitigate risk and hedge against fluctuation yeah. in the currency rates. Uh, I'm going to assume that you look at other n factors such as consumer price index and where that's going and unemployment and all of that. And where I'm going, Ron, is that uh, currently, as I understand it, there's a lot of jobs out there that people are not taking because yeah. they can make more money not working. Isn't that a terrible thought? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it really is. I mean, in the long run. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, how do you see that eventually impacting the unemployment rate or jobs availability down the road? And is that going to make be a good thing or a bad thing or a neutral thing for the average consumer? So just the other day, um, the new number came out for job openings, 9.2 million job openings. Um, that's a record number. On um, Friday, the unemployment rate came out or the unemployment numbers came out and it, they were they were big. I mean, 560 some thousand jobs, but less than expected. But I kind of say, well, what's less than expected? I'll take 560,000 jobs every month, right? That, that's a good thing. But as people don't have to work and they don't have to stretch themselves. So now when I, you know, when you enter the job market or you're moving from job one to job two, you are still stretching yourself in terms of knowledge and um, uh, ability, right? So that's a positive thing for a human being to stretch yourself, to go out and be a little uncomfortable with where you're at. And um, if, if we don't see folks doing that because it's easier to stay home, then, then that's a problem long-term, in my opinion, right. that you need to challenge yourself, you need to stretch yourself, and you need to um, get some pride, like I did this and I got paid, so now I want to try doing that and I want to get paid. Um, I, I think that's a, and that's my kind of my underlying view or theme about 
what, what we do with too many social programs. Are we taking, are we taking the ability of that person, that God-given ability, the day you're born, you know, you could do whatever, right? Like it's a blank canvas. Are we taking that canvas away by saying, we'll sit down and, and, and we'll, we'll give you 300 bucks or 380 bucks. Um, you know, a quick story. I have a daughter who lives in Atlanta and she just finished up her graduate degree down there. She works for the medical examiner's office, DeKalb County Medical Examiner's Office. And she also is a, um, a waiter, a waitress, server, I guess we're supposed to say server. Yeah, yeah, that's to be safe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, be pronoun neutral or whatever. Right, right, right. She knows what I mean. Um, <laughs> but she was working on the weekends at a wine bar right next to the Brave Stadium. And once that first line of checks went out, half of the staff never came back to work. Yeah. And I remember having a call with her and saying, I said, well, what do you plan on doing? And she's like, well, I plan on keep on working. And I'm like, absolutely. I said, if they don't want to work, you work more. And I guarantee you, you're going to make more money. Yeah. And so she's been, uh, you know, she works two jobs and, and um, you know, she's doing great, but she's also 25. So that's a good thing. Yeah, it's interesting. I just stopped, uh, left Cub Foods and they were shutting down the deli early because people weren't coming in to work because they're making more money staying at home. It's just, so it, it, it's, it's just crazy. And, you know, some of us knew that this was going to happen, but, you know, uh, they start calling you all kinds of names when you just predict stuff like that. Um, we, we, we tend to, um, well, there's, there's, everybody wants to feel good. And I, th I, th I think right now, you know, my, um, when I think about being a parent, um, my kids are 27, 25, and 20. We probably were the first group of parents to start being a little easier on our kids, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think it just continues down that path. So that's what bothers me is, is we, we, you can't make life easy for your kids, you know. Oh, I agree. Yeah. You've got to ride them a little bit. So – Let's segue, and you gave us a little minute preview on some of the things that you as a person, not necessarily as a career professional, is interested in some of your uh, things such as education. Uh, I read something about your things you care about, and we've talked a little bit about economic empowerment, uh, but let's touch a little bit on education and uh, your interest in education and the type of things you've done to, uh, I'm going to presume, Ron, to improve education and support the improvement in education. Why don't you share briefly with our audience yeah. your interest there? So um, I had been part of the Chicago Improv uh, Foundation, um, which, of course, Chicago is known for improv. Um, and so I was the president of the board of the Chicago Improv and um, Chicago Improv Foundation. And so we had two or three different faces, if you will. You had this weird subculture of um, improv people. And if you ever had a chance to spend too much time around them, you'd, you'd maybe regret it um, or not. I don't know. But totally different group. Um, and I was brought in to help build out the education sector. So, you know, as we know, in business, a lot of companies will send their salespeople specifically to improv classes to kind of learn how to, you know, to, so 
I was on the education side and what we were doing was we were going to some of the uh, schools in the, in the, in the, in the more difficult neighborhoods in Chicago. And we would take English students, young, young, third mm -hmm. grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. age and help them write a story, build the theme behind that story and then act that story out on stage. And we had all of our improv professionals that would spend a day or two to help them understand that you could write that story and see it actually show up on stage two days later. And, and is, is, it was difficult getting funding for that kind of thing, but I've got to tell you, the results were fantastic. And um, be, because it was such a good thing, the energy around the improv artists, mm. um, it was great. So it was really, really great to be involved in that. Okay. So, you know, that, that to me is a really important thing is to get these young people when they're still ready to learn. Cause we know that at a certain age, eh, mm -hmm. it's not cool anymore. Right. Um, but you want to get them and get them involved in those types of things. Okay. And you use the phrase more difficult communities in Chicago. I think I'm, yeah. Uh, using that correctly, uh, were any of these more difficult communities in Chicago on either the south side or the west side? Uh, yeah, where we were in those two, they were in those two areas. <laughs> okay. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm a south sider, so I, I'm very, uh, I, I'm a little, I'm a little more sensitive when it comes to the south side, right? Like, I'm only going to go to a White Sox game. Right, 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 right. Game, right. Right. So I don't right, know what goes on on that side of the town. <laughs> I just know what goes on on the south and west side. But, you know, as you know, when you read in the papers, both of those areas, um, Englewood and, and Austin area, they've they're just it, it's just awful. Yeah, yeah. But interestingly enough, Lacey, they always have been yeah. since I was a little kid. No change. Yeah. No well, change. Here, here's the thing. I call me naive or whatever, uh, but I think I have done my homework. Uh, I think there's hope there, and uh, some of the things that we're trying to do here, and you and I, and I must share with the audience that uh, uh, I work with an opportunity zone fund that's basically designed to uh, bring for-profit enterprises into uh, these more difficult communities and that you have been helping with that effort. And I really appreciate that. You've been introducing us to a lot of people who want to make a difference and who at the same time uh, take advantage of the tax savings on capital gains. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing that, that we're doing here. And uh, tell me uh, why uh, you have been so helpful in trying to uh, help develop uh, free enterprise businesses and bring jobs and things to uh, communities, uh, more difficult communities like South Side Chicago, West Side Chicago, North Side Minneapolis, uh, Northwest Washington D.C. You go down the list. Yeah. Uh, yeah what right. what what motivates you to do those things, Ron? Well, I, I think um, I think it's a fairly simple equation. Um, you know, I I've been fortunate enough to have a good life good education and healthy family, healthy kids and so forth. And when I look back and say, wait a minute, the things that I did, the way I was, uh, was raised, they are, they're not difficult. They're not, you know, some, and, and I think we all 
as citizens, um, citizens of the, of the country, citizens of the globe, we have a, a duty to be there for other folks, other people, regardless of, of age, regardless of color, regardless of whatever. We're here to bend over and help another person, if that's the right way to say it. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. pick somebody up and help them. And I think the education perspective is, is key. And we hear that all the time. But we hear the government talk about it. And, you know, the government hasn't gotten it right in 40 or 50 years, if, if not longer, right? So mm -hmm. it's not a left or right issue. It's a total issue of just not really understanding that it's important to, to challenge young people. And young people want to be challenged. Yes. Um, and, you know, on, on the flip side of that, um, the, the other side is, is for me, feeding people. I think we to think that in 2021 in this country, you know, you have the state of, of Iowa that in one year can feed Mexico, the country of for three years. Right. And mm -hmm. we can't, we have people starving here in this country. Um, and having a mother who grew up in a housing project, six brothers and sisters or mom. And she would always tell me as she was, uh, as I was a young kid that she remembers having to stand in food lines. And, and get cheese or whatever. And, um, you know, that, that's, that's sad. That, that hurts me, right, to think that my mom and, and her brothers and sisters went through that. Um, so it, it's kind of a give back. Wait a minute. I, I, I think we have the resources. Let's not waste the resources. Let's have them and let's put them in the right place. Right. So, Ron, I think it's safe to say that you and I, believe in the basic free, free enterprise system and its solutions and ability to offer 100%. people. Yeah, to, to, to offer people a chance to rise above. And I, I always say be whatever uh, uh, they want to be in life. What do you say to uh, a younger generation, and kind of stereotypical, who've been indoctrinated throughout the public school system to think that capitalism is bad and the answer is socialism and and all these other things. What do you say to the, our younger people to, if there's anything we can say to them, well, yeah, to, get them <laughs> to get them to uh, appreciate uh, the value of competition and how competition uh, challenges all of us to be the best that we can be. I, I tell people, I, I kind of equate socialism to parody in the NFL where everybody's going to be equal and, and you don't have to draft, draft. You can be average and versus rewarding the teams who are good at finding talent and hiring great coaches and got the right nutritional program. Uh, and the way I put it, too, I used to love it when there was teams that uh, like Dallas and Pittsburgh that just beat the heck out of these other teams who weren't doing so well and challenged them to get better. But uh, that's a long way of uh, coming back to the question. What do you say yeah. to young people who – think that this system is bad and we need to replace it and and let's give everybody a guaranteed income and they don't have to work. Uh, what do you say to uh, people, not just young people, there's old people too that thinks that way. What do you say? Oh, to yeah. 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 Um, so it, it, to your point, it's very difficult to have the conversation with them because they've been indoctrinated. They've you know, some of them are already in college and they're listening to a professor 
who maybe has never had a real job. And I'm not, I'm not saying that in a negative, well, I am saying it a little bit of a negative way. You tell uh, them like it is. <laughs> you know, we didn't go out and do the interview and sit down and then go from nowhere to somewhere. Um, the challenge in, in that conversation is when you look around the globe, you look at Venezuela, you look at Argentina, you look at China, you look at in parts of, uh, of, of Russia, do you think that is a positive way to live? You know, you, you the, and again, I, I would think about talking to my, my kids' friends and so forth. You've had parents that worked really hard, paid for your college education. You've never had to write a check. You never knew what that bill looked like. And so now you sit here and go, well, wait, what, who's going to give me money now? Oh, I like this idea of socialism. I like this idea of, you know, getting free money. Well, there's nothing free in life. For every attachment to free, there's a negative. And when I think about free money, then then you're then you're capped. You're not going anywhere. And if you look at somebody that parents are are are, are poor and they struggled and they fought and they they get to be a doctor, which you could do here in this mm -hmm. country, right? Yes. You could do that. That person, in my mind, is a much better person than somebody who has been given it their whole life. And yes, they're a doctor and this other person is a doctor, but being a doctor from nowhere is so much better. The character that you've built, right? So how do I tell these young people, listen, the car you're driving, it's going to be gone. The uh, bus fare you have, that's all you're going to have. Um, that big house that you want to to purchase in what, Lake Minnetonka, is mm -hmm. that's never going to be yours. You will never have a chance. That's what I try to and, – and then I also try to bring it back to sports, right? I'm a big, big fan of sports. Um, you know, you, when you're playing baseball or volleyball or, or, or soccer or whatever, you're challenging yourself to get better. So why would you not do the same thing in life? Why would you just say, well, I'm done? Well, Ron, as I say to most of my guests, especially those who are living here in the Twin Cities, one of these days we'll get together for some coffee and to continue this conversation. Uh, in the meantime, I appreciate uh, us working together uh, to bring free enterprise solutions to these uh, ch challenged communities and to bring companies and high paying jobs and technology. And I agree with you. Uh, I work with a lot of young people. And uh, once you give them the message that they can be anything they want to be, and they see that you believe in them and you, you care about them, it's amazing what they can go out and do. And just try to uh, negate all the negative uh, information that they are receiving about how unfair the world is and how we got to change the world before you succeed. And I've just had such great success along that line. So let's keep being disciples for that. And it's amazing what these young people can do once they change their perspective and stop hearing all the negative stuff. In fact, I'm often chastising adults that, you know, 
all these kids here is what they can't do and how the world is stacked against them. And are you surprised that they're going out and with all this dysfunctional behavior and feeling hopeless and, and looking at their lives as a little value and not only their own lives, but the people around them, that's the way they're looking at it. And I tell everyone, and I'm just like when you were growing up, my parents and adults didn't talk to me about those things. No, they talked to no, me no, no. about hey, what you need to do to get better. And if you do these things, uh, chances are you're going to succeed in life. So we need to get back to that. And I thank you uh, for helping spread that message. And once again, for help doing uh, basically uh, practical, offering practical solutions to that, these issues. So thanks again. Now, uh, is there anything, Ron, that you wanted to talk about or say to our audience that I, as a fledging interviewer, uh, I did not uh, ask or anything along those lines or any parting words you'd like to leave with our audience. Yeah. So um, first of all, you, this was a great interview. You're fantastic at this. So, you know, I, I think we found your new, uh, your new uh, career. Um, I, I, so two things, uh, I'm going to be teaching a class at uh, your alma mater, University of Minnesota uh, in November um, on risk management. So I'm, I'm, I just found out this week I'm going to do that. Um, I, I was fortunate to do that at the University of Texas and University of Washington and SMU and uh, a couple other places. So now I can put University of Minnesota uh, on that list as well. So I'm excited about that. And, you know, when I teach those classes, you get a lot of kids that are smart alecky. They know more than everybody else, right? Mm -hmm. I guess, you know. I got a nephew people. like that. <laughs> yeah. And so it's a bit of a challenge to watch watch what I say. But I do always end it with the same the same conversation. And that is, you know, and I think this would be appropriate here. In, in life, we, we only have ourselves to rely upon. And everyone will remember you that you cross paths with in life as to whether you're good or bad, or they want to hang out more with you or less in the way you treat other people. So when you graduate from college, you graduate from high school, get out of the military, always remember that 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, people will remember you for how you treated other people. Mm -hmm. And it's not difficult. So do always try to do the right thing. And, and you can't always do the right thing, but you have to really try to do the right thing. And short-term gains make you feel good. But life is a, is a marathon. And those long-term gains is what gains are what matters. And so, you know, be good to everyone. And, and um, someday somebody will be good to you when you need it. Okay. Well, that's a great uh, note to end on, Ron. Uh, keep shining your bright lights and sharing it with other people unless you and I and others like us and like-minded people keep working hard to go out there and to make positive, visible, measurable differences in people's lives. So thank you very much and looking forward to grabbing a cup of coffee with you and to be in a few more business meetings with you Yes, uh, yeah, where absolutely. we are trying to bring investment dollars uh, into these communities like North Minneapolis and South Side and West Side Chicago. So thank you very let's, much. Let's make have a good difference. evening. And I look forward to talking to you soon. It was my pleasure. Please take care. Thank you. Thanks, Ron.